Nobody taught any leader, you know, how to build a company when the whole psychology of the workforce shifts. You're going to have to deal with remote and hybrid work on a scale you've never dealt before. And, you know, good luck. You know, what school has a major and all of that? Welcome to Evolve Leadership, the arena where high achieving leaders are challenged to redefine their limits. My name is Angus Nelson. I grew up in the United States and I now live in Lisbon, Portugal. I'm an executive coach and I've spent my career advising and training leaders from startups to Fortune 500 companies. And here's what I've learned. An old, ineffective leadership framework will always keep you on a hamster wheel, consumed with work-life balance, burnout, and stress. Here on the show, each week we'll help you rethink the path to achievement. We'll help you discover new principles, new philosophies to the modern leader. Look, the world is relentlessly changing, demanding a new era of leaders. It's time to redefine your limits. So enter the arena, my friend. It's time to evolve. Great to have you guys here. Great to have Steve here. If you didn't already know, Steve is a talent strategist and company culture expert responsible for building world-class teams and company cultures at some of the world's most respected organizations. He's one of the foremost authorities on the future of work and is renowned for leading LinkedIn's talent push from 400 to 4,000 in three and a half years, responsible for architecting its world-famous company culture. And He's hung out in Lisbon quite a bit, so he's got some real taste. Steve, so great to have you here. Thank you and a welcome. Thanks for having me, Angus. All right, it's great to get started. So I want to kind of take back to how you started your career. Like, how did you get into the space of uh, human resources? How did you even follow that trek? Was that something that was an aspiration or did you try and go one direction and then end up into a, working in the people business? A completely accidental, you know, crash. Uh, I'm the son of a minister and a social worker. My mom's, I'm the first male in three generations who's not an ordained Episcopal minister. So I'm kind of the one who got away. I don't know how many of you are the black sheep of your family, but they're like, where did we go wrong with that fucking guy? <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, I uh, went to college uh, without a clue, without a plan. Uh, it's just because what you did. I majored in history because it was the one I seemed to do well in. I was terrified of tests, so I only took classes that allowed me to write papers. Uh, later, that would serve me well because my capacity to communicate is one of my real superpowers today. I graduated, and I had no clue what I wanted to do. And I very quickly found a profession that matched everything I loved about sports, which is you know not only as an athlete, but as a huge uh, fan. I love seeing how people handle competitive situations, how they play when they're behind, how they play when, how they handle loss, how they play when they used to be the star and they're no longer the star, how they play when they're injured, how they play with a, a loud coach. And that whole universe has always fascinated me. And that's what really drew me in um, initially to recruiting. And so here I am like 23, 24, and I found something that was really mapped well with the joy that I had for sports. And so over the Next 35, 40 years till today, I've been perfecting that craft. I think I worked in about six different industries, um, lived and worked in Singapore for two years, Western Canada for four, 
so yeah, that's kind of how I, I fell into it. Um, and yeah, it's been a, a real fortunate path for me. I haven't had to you know, search like many people do over the course of their careers for that thing that fits what they really love. Thanks so much for giving that backstory and you know, kind of jumping into that, you went with a couple of larger companies and you then got an opportunity to go to LinkedIn. Uh, for all of you video gamers, you were currently at that time, you were working for this gaming company, EA, and you'd just been there a short period of time. And all of a sudden, this opportunity came for you to jump over to LinkedIn. There were a couple of things you had to face there. One was, you know, kind of the typical, like when you join a company, you're there for, you know, 25 years and a gold watch was the old, you know, old school way of doing things. And now all of a sudden you're looking at an opportunity and saying, hey, this is something I want to jump into. Can you kind of give us some story? Like what bridged you into like making that jump? And then what did you have to face emotionally or internally to get there? And most of my career before then, as you mentioned, was with big companies. And those of you who've had a big company journey, which is wonderful, what you primarily do is you're tuning what people built before you most of the time in human resources. Fix policy, fix the practices, get a little bit of this, bit of that. And what the, when LinkedIn came and knocked on my door and said, would you be our first head of HR? I looked at that and said, wow, this is a chance for me to build something from scratch. And so that was the big draw for me. It was the newness. It was the fact that I'd never done it before. So I thought going into LinkedIn, well, how hard can this be? Like, I've seen every mistake made. I've made every mistake. Like, this is going to be great. I'm going to apply all my lessons and I'm going to build it right. Except for one thing. I'd never built something from nothing. And it turns out that's really hard. And I don't know how many of you have ever had the chance to walk into an organization where your discipline that you've worked 20, 25 years to build has basically been stripped down to the core and you've got to build it up from nothing. And it's a, it's a rare privilege and opportunity. But for me, it was almost you know, exciting, equally exciting and terrifying, honestly. But that was part of the draw. I guess it was doing something I'd never done before. So let's talk about the terrifying because, you know, we talk about, well, two things. One is, you know, nobody does anything that doesn't scare the shit out of them. In the cave, you fear to enter lies the treasure that you seek. You know, that's all this element of facing fears. But then the second piece is, you know, it's something I just said to you from your book, uh, Alan Weber said into the intro to your book, and he says that uh, no one walks away unscathed. So one is, fear and on the other side of fear is what you're looking for. And number two is you're going to take some scars. You're going to take some beating along the way. What were some of those things that you had to face a internally to be able to navigate all that? Plus what was going through your head? I imagine the audacity and imposter syndrome and all the things that typically somebody walks into a room and says, what the hell am I doing this? And at the same time saying, let's go. For you, what was your story facing all of that? How much time do we have here? <laughs> uh, so, okay, simple. I'll start with the simple, and then we'll we'll go up the up the ladder of um, of scary. So, the first couple of weeks on the job, during the interview process, I was really clear. I have three young boys, okay, three children, and coaching them is a big part of who I am. So, if that's not okay here, then this is not okay. And they're like, "Oh yeah, totally okay." So first week, I'm leaving at five o'clock to go coach my boys baseball. It says, hey, where are you going? And I go, oh, I'm going to coach my kids. She goes, oh, great. See you later. And it's like, mm. you know, I sort of, I felt that sort of passive aggressive, 
you know, I'm sitting here grinding and you're out there coaching your kids. And anyway, that was the beginning of sort of like, hmm, okay. Uh, see, third, uh, third or fourth month on the job, uh, we had a really critical candidate who uh, didn't accept our offer and took an offer with Facebook. Now, in LinkedIn days, if you lose a candidate to Facebook, you might as well have like, you know, you know, cheated on your wife over there. It's like, it's bad. Like, you don't do that. How could you let this guy go? And I had to write him, well, the compensation budget you told me to work within is crap. It doesn't afford this. And Facebook's basically paying him twice. So if you want me to, you know, pay what they're paying, I'm happy to do it. And in, in, in retrospect, you know, what I was dealing with was a lot of people who were in bigger jobs than they'd ever been in in their entire lives all around you. And yeah. so we're all kind of making this up as we go. Uh, the most people I'd ever managed in my life on my team was like 25 before LinkedIn. And now I've got at one point, 250 people around the world uh, just working in some dimension of human resources somewhere. And so I think that stress was pretty prevalent. I would go into uh, my boss's meeting and say, hey, do you hear that noise? And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, those are all the balls I'm dropping. I can't get everything done. But that's also offset by the incredible rush of you know, your employees. Just the, the culture that you're building is, so, uh, is amazing. And there's so many great things going on. And that's why we stay in jobs sometimes, even though there's a darkness to it, is that there's a real brightness to it. Mm-hmm. And it's when those things get so out of whack that over an extended period that we say, I'm out. And fortunately for me, man, the thrill of like interviewing people like Deepak Chopra or uh, getting to be on stage with Obama and having him come to the company. I mean, those kinds of things, it's like, boom, boom, these incredible. I mean, as soon as we started getting more high profile, the, the people that wanted to come into our environment, I got to spend a whole day with General Stanley McChrystal. Uh, and we brought him in because he wanted to understand what LinkedIn was. And this was after he'd left, uh, you know, running the whole Afghan theater for the U.S. And we had a moment where we're like, hey, uh, what problems were you solving? Like, tell us your problem. And he outlined the very same problem that he was having with the Pentagon, the uh, White House, his frontline and his headquarters that we were having with engineering product and operations, like the same thing, communication gap. And so it was really kind of affirming to hear uh, and to be able to learn from some of these people. So the problem we had to solve is I couldn't outpay, outbenefit, outwork environment, out sushi chef, all the companies that I was recruiting against. I couldn't. But what I could try to deliver and what the leadership team, this is the moment of truth for us, what we could deliver was the best career experience for however long you're there. And so what, what did that mean? What that meant was when this guy Armin approached us and says, I'm training uh, for the Olympic team for the, you know, Armenia, his, his home country, and I can't do that and fulfill my duty. So here's my resignation. And we knew it was coming because the CFO and I were told, and his name was Steve also. Um, and he, we brought him into the room and we took his uh, letter and we ripped it up right in front of him. We threw it down and he said, what are you doing? He said, we're not going to let you resign. Like we're going to amend your role here to let you realize your dream and shame on us if we, if, if we don't do that. And he, we said, why don't you go help build a fitness center for us and help us out with facilities. If you look at his LinkedIn profile right now, he's like a superstar in facilities. <laughs> that moment he went from accounting to, it changed his arc. And he starts crying. The CFO starts crying. When the CFO starts crying, I'm definitely going to be crying. But that was a moment where we're living it. And when you deliver on something fundamental like that, um, that's better than any marketing campaign you could ever do, right? Because it's real. 
And when other people see that's happening, they say, oh, it's possible. And they start thinking differently around creative roles for other people in the organization. And it starts flipping like dominoes, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. So you're facing all this stuff. One of the sayings that we have around here is like, who must I become? When you're facing whatever it is in leadership, in your business, in your marriage, in your fatherhood, it's not a matter of what's the thing I'm trying to do, but rather who must I become to be the kind of man that does those kinds of things? You had to face a lot of this stuff internally. And you, I'm guessing from what I just heard, some of it's professional and then some of it's personal. Mm-hmm. Um, so my question to you is twofold. One is who was the man you had to become? What was the kind of leader, the transition you had to make internally for you in the business? And then number two, related, like who have you become since then? Yeah. So I'll have to be, I mean, a hundred percent transparent. I don't know that I conquered it there. Honestly, I don't know that I did. I tried. Um, and I carried a lot of parental guilt of being home and not being home. You know what I mean? Like being resentful of your kids that they want your time when you've got a board deck that you got to get out before a certain hour and you're feeling all this pressure and you're not becoming the person that you want to be and you're not present uh, in your family. I mean, I battled that forever. I had the misfortune and the great fortune, as the CEO would say, is your job is more important than any because we're a recruiting company and we weren't recruiting very well. And that's not an option. Like we better be really great. And if our customers know we don't know how to recruit, we're LinkedIn, we're fucked, you know? So you better fix it. And so there were sort of impossible odds and this incredible pressure that you always felt. So what things that I feel that I tried to do to varying degrees of success were when you're in the service in a service role like human resources, there's infinite things you should be doing in theory. It's service. There is no end to service, right? And you've got employees all over the world. Someone's got a need at every hour of every day. So I tried to set limits and I tried to say no more. And as a perfectionist who honestly believes no one can do it better than I can, um, you know, that was hard for me at first. Uh, second thing was hiring more people better than me in some disciplines. People better at comp and benefits. People better in immigration relocation. People better at employee relations. Hiring a training and development department. Taking out my hotspots and giving me more time to breathe and be strategic, you know? So I went from initially putting out every fire. It's like, like, I don't know, day one on the job, the CEO's assistant says, hey, my dad just died. What's our bereavement policy? I look left, I look right. I don't see a binder of policies. I go, uh, three days, how's that? She goes, great. Okay, policy number one, done. Uh, and that's kind of how we're flying over here. But that was really hard for me, turning off that voice that that's on fire, that's on fire over there. We've got issues in India, we've got issues in, uh, you know, in the China, blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff. So. I think hiring a better team, being more thoughtful, and moving from the front lines of operational tactician to by the time I left, I was mostly coaching the executive team on how to be better leaders and how the team could work better. And that was really, I think, better played more to my strength, right? Let me just pause for a second to say this. There is one trait that you will find in every successful leader, no matter their industry, no matter their role. And that trait is action. And we want to inspire ambitious leaders like you to bet on yourself and take action on those audacious goals that you see in your heart. That's why we created our 90 day accelerator. 
It's a results-driven, battle-tested framework designed specifically for high-performing leaders like you to get unstuck and propel you towards your goals. And in just 90 days, you won't even recognize a person you used to be. To be a part of this elite community, go to evolveleadership.org. Now, back to the show. And since then, now it's hindsight 2020. Mm-hmm. But who you've become since then, the perspective, the objectivity that you have from leadership, from the future work, whatever, and stepping into this place of thought leadership, being a voice, being um, you know, a leader of your own. What have you had to do to check your ego at the door? What are some of the things you've had to, you know, press through to be this guy? Because you don't have an easy life. You're on the road a bazillion days out of the year anyway. Yeah. What is this causing you to do? Sure. Well, let me give a little more context. And I didn't decide to leave LinkedIn. I showed up one day and I told my boss, I think I'm done. And it just came out of my mouth. Like I hadn't a plan. I was like, I'm not going to do this. Uh, I mean, don't get me wrong. Don't feel sorry for me. I had more, I made more money than LeBron James has ever made in his best year because of LinkedIn share price. Like I'm doing just fine. But after a while, when you look at that bank account and you say, I'm in the best job in my profession, top of the mountain, I've got more financial security. If my parents knew how much I'd made, they, their heads would explode. But why am I doing this? So I just showed up one day and said, I'm out. And my boss like, what? He goes, uh, what? You know, he tried to talk me into staying in lots of different kinds of roles. I said, no, I, this is hard for me. I'm not going to be the hanger on executive who's sucking off the corporate. No, I'm out. And, um, and you can't have someone in human resources unless they're fully committed to the, the plan. So I left. My wife at the time was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yep, I'm done. And then probably nine months after I left, my twins were walking on the sidewalk uh, with our, the babysitter at the time. And they just bought a pumpkin carving kit and an old 95-year-old man drove onto the sidewalk and smashed my, t- my twins against the wall. Uh, and one of the boys uh, t- had his arm snap in two. It's okay now. The other one took it full on and was in the hospital in the ICU for months. We didn't know if he was going to make it. And he wound up making it through. Just really devastating. Uh, here I am, you know, top of the mountain. Oh, yeah, you know, I crushed it. And now I can see my marriage is pretty much, you know, ending. And now my kids are almost, you know, killed. And here I am sort of like, you know, whoa, I wasn't ready for that. This is once on how I envisioned the, you know, get to the top of the mountain. And um, now I'm sort of, you know, I'm 50 at the time. Like I got to start over, you know, I got to rebuild my life. And kids were um, like six, the twins were six. My older was nine at the time. And my parents were divorced. And I'm just like, man, this is not how I wanted the script to go. And I, you know, I'm sad the marriage ended, but I needed, it needed to end. And I'm as much responsible as, as anyone for, for, for that not working out. And so that was just a serious dark moment for me, you know? And while all that's happening, uh, fortunately for me, my phone starts ringing and all these people that I hadn't talked to in years, cause I'd been so busy said, let's get together. And so over the next year or so, as I'm trying to get on my feet and go through this divorce, I start having the market tell me that there's a big need for what I can do. And then people started saying, would you come talk to my company? Would you talk to our leaders? Would you talk to our investors? Would you talk to our employees? And I started to experience in all those different venues, Angus, like when my heart would 
uh, race and get excited and when I would get really depressed, you know, and it was working with the big companies, depressed, working with the hyper growth, like earlier stage, super excited. And so that's when I started to say, well, let me sort of pivot my time over there. Uh, meanwhile, um, you know, coached my boys to multiple basketball championships in the junior league here, which I love some baseball championships and started to really come alive as a coach, which I love. And once my kids finish college, I'm probably going to approach some local high schools here and see if I could coach some JV or varsity basketball, which I just love. So that helped me, you know, that time really sort of shook me to my core, stripped me down to raw studs. But here, here's a really interesting thing. And, and, um, is that that whole experience with my sons, the accident has fueled a big part of how I deliver what I deliver now when I, when I give a talk around the changing biology of work, using the metaphor that the doctors told me about my son is when a car impacts a body for an extended period of time, in this case, 15 minutes, the organs fail to remember how to work together. Whereas if they'd just been hit on the street and they bounced off the car, the organs would have figured out how to get back together, most likely. But because it was pinned for a long period of time, like we were pinned in work for a long period of time with COVID, like those normal patterns that we had in our life just kind of dissolved. And so, you know, I've been able to, with some help of some friends, um, really start thinking about well, my stories happened for a reason and it's helped inform my work story a little bit. And so um, that sort of a little bit of, you know, a circle of life uh, moment, if you will. Dude, I just wanted to like come across the screen and give you a hug and share my bourbon with you. Okay, so facing the uncertainty and the ambiguity of the future, you talked about learning uh, mindset, adaptability, agility, and growth uh, mindset, and uh, the ability to think entrepreneurially, even if you're working for someone else. Mm -hmm. Can you kind of dive into some of that? looking at the future work of how all of that's playing into what success needs to look like? Yeah, right now, I think it's just such a fascinating, I mean, as a closet cultural anthropologist, it is the most fascinating time that we are ever going to experience in our lifetimes where, I mean, we're asking things like, why do we even go to an office? Why do we meet? What's the point? Who came up with the five-day work week? We're, I love the fact that we're just questioning basic stuff. We should. It's kind of like when I went to LinkedIn, like, why are we even giving people feedback on their performance? What's the point? And we should have meaningful answers to that. That's why, I mean, I spend time with so many leaders today and they're terrified for a lot of reasons. One, talent has more choices of where to work than ever before. There's more new industries to choose from to develop career sort of choice paralysis than ever before. Nobody believes the length of time people are going to stay in organizations is going to increase. It's only going to accelerate in terms of how fast people leave. And, and nobody taught uh, any leader you know, how to build a company when the whole psychology of the workforce shifts. You're going to have to deal with remote and hybrid work on a scale you've never dealt before. Your supply chain is completely fucked. And uh, there's a you know, price of oil is going up. And you know, good luck. You know, what school has a major and all of that? I get asked all the time by some of the biggest companies in the world. I mean, we're talking Fortune 50, Fortune 5, the CEOs saying, hey, who's doing it right? I go, nobody yet. Nobody. So here's the great news. It's time to be the benchmark and not look for a benchmark. But we've all been taught when you're faced with big decisions, well, let's go and see what other people have done. Well, no one's been through this before. So we have to, you know, trailblaze a little bit. And it's at a scale we've never seen before. So that's kind of exciting. 
uh, to, to pioneer, but it's also really scary, right? And as I say, I've dealt with a lot of hospitals uh, and hospital systems the last year, and they are terrified because many early retirements for doctors and nurses, and nurses have many more choices on where to work. And I say, you know, as a parent, I'm thrilled my kids have more choices on where to go and what to do. As an employer, that's terrifying. If you're leading an organization right now, or you're sitting in an organization right now, your capacity to really adapt and find new ways of creating value has never been more essential. And that's the competitive advantage that I'm trying to show organizations. But there's still, as, as uh, some people, someone was telling me the other day, you can't use an old map when you're navigating a new world. And all these people get back to the office because it's what we know. All these executives running companies because they got their power from everyone being in the office. That's what they want to return to. So they're more comfortable with that. And you know, more power to them if that's what makes you comfortable. But your addressable market for top talent is going to shrink. Because more people are asking every search firm around the world, the first question the recruiters are telling me that it's being asked is, can I do this job remotely? Right. So it's, you know, and and by the way, it's not stopping right now. The majors that people are choosing in universities is going through a radical transformation. The people going into university is seeing a significant reduction, even in community colleges. The majors people are choosing and the changing of majors is happening at a, at a faster clip than we've ever seen before. So the people that are allegedly going into the workforce are bringing a whole different outlook than we've ever seen before. And we don't know what that means yet, you know? And so it's like these ripple effects are happening. We're also seeing, and those of you, uh, you know, like yourself, Angus, living in another country, we're seeing more immigration reform to attract knowledge workers globally than at any time in history. And in Portugal, they did such a good job. There's a backlash <laughs> cut down on those people coming in here, driving up our, our house prices, right? So, you know, wow. I know the first time I heard you go into all of that, I, my mind just went. Yeah. And to think it's, it's actually super logical. You know, you just don't take the time to actually think it through. Mm-hmm. Now with this construct of, you know, that learning mindset, growth, I don't know. It's scary. Son of a bitch, what do I do? Nobody's ever done this before. What are some of the like internal shifts and maybe even resources that some of these leaders need to start thinking about? They're going to help prepare them to be in a place where they're ready. And I'm going to use air quotes on ready. Sure. I would say it's pretty simple, Angus. If you think all of you, if you think about the moment in your career when you experience the biggest leap the biggest step up? Was it when you were doing the same thing for a long period of time? Or was it when you took on something new and different and someone had faith that you could handle something that you weren't sure you could handle? And it's that latter moment. And so I'm trying to tell leaders, you know, having sat at LinkedIn and built a new industry and put people in roles that didn't exist before or putting people in roles that they didn't feel they were qualified for at a massive scale and seeing them crush it time and time again, I think it really raised my confidence level that people doing new things unlocks an energy that can sometimes, and most of the time, more than compensates for a lack of experience. But that's not how we've designed work. We've designed work to keep you doing the same thing for a long period of time, because I need to know with confidence that you're going to deliver those results. So you can't apply for that new job until you've been doing that for a year or two years. We've designed career families, how we promote people. All the benefits are all around keeping you longer versus you know, putting you in new situations, unlocking that energy. So that's what I'm trying to do is help people understand it's okay 
give it a shot, you know, lean in a little bit. Mm -hmm. And if you think about your own experience, Mrs. or Mr. Executive, when you really had that leap was when you were doing something new. And we've got, this is why I'm saying, I mean, I, I could speak about this all day. The architectural work is fundamentally broken for how fast things are changing right now. All, everything we use was built for a slower pace of work. Oh, that's great. One of the things that you said in your book that I love so much is the, the, just the whole construct or concept that we aren't hiring people to stay, but we're hiring them to help their next best job. You, know, you, you just want to help them be successful so they'll be successful at the next thing. And it's a complete mind shift. Mm-hmm. It's like, while you're here, my goal is to keep you, you know, hungry and learning and advancing and knowing you're not going to be here forever. And a year from now, you're going to be somewhere else. And we're going to have systems in place that are going to bring on the next person. Yeah. Massive yeah. shifts. I know. I, I, I really feel that my place in the universe right now is to try to provoke different kinds of thinking around this. And I say, you know, how many of you work in a company where, oh, yeah, people are number one. We care about people so much, except if you leave us, then we do not give a shit about you at all. You know, and I've, I've worked for some of those places and I've built some of those policies like you're out. OK, here's some boxes quick. Yeah, you go to a competitor. You're out fast. And it's just broken today. And here's one of the, you know, the facts that I'll, I'll leave you, um, those of you in, in organizations seeing higher attrition in a world where more people are leaving faster. You have more alumni than you've ever had. And so everyone I talk to, yeah, we definitely do see. Okay, are you talking to them? They're like, uh, no, we went all Tony Soprano on them. You quit, you're dead to us. And that doesn't work. You know, that's another one's like, so you care, really care about people, except if they go. Then you just don't. Like, what? Um, it's sort of like, you know, head spin on a swivel. So I'm trying to change some of the thinking. And we are seeing more organizations do really cool stuff. Last example I'll give, and then I'll throw it back to you, Angus, for another question. There's a, a, a restaurant chain in the States called Chick-fil-A. If you go to the South, they call it God's Chicken. On their career website, they have three people featured, and two of them are ex-employees saying, thank you, Chick-fil-A, for helping me realize my dream job somewhere else. Thank you for growing me and investing me and giving me a new experience. And to me, that's the future of way work is. We care about you for your whole career, and we're going to make this the best part of it, but we know we're just, a, we're just a stop on your journey. We want it to be the best stop on your journey, but we know you're going somewhere else versus, you know, hey, I saw you updated your LinkedIn profile. Are you interviewing? You know, are you doing something else out there? Like, who's that person you had coffee with? Looked like you were over at Google. Were you over there for lunch? Like, come on, man. You know, like, that doesn't work, right? <laughs> All right. Ah. And guys, if you haven't read his book, I highly recommend you go and check it out. And he, he dives into a bunch of the different companies, Chipotle and some of the others um, that basically look at that whole alumni premise and the consultancies, et cetera, in a different, different light or fashion. Looking at everything that we've already talked about, and we went deep, we covered a lot of stuff that you know hits some emotional levels, and especially for men. These are not things we're always comfortable with. These are not always things that we are uh, in this today's society uh, the safest to talk about. What are some of the things you would encourage men in this day and age to think about when it comes to mental health and some of the areas we just covered? Yeah, I think where I, the biggest learning I've had in my own journey is that and someone said this to me recently, they said that there is no such thing as the future of work. It's really the future of living. And I think so often we try to solve the work thing 
And I've, I, I did that really well, but it didn't solve the life thing. You know, like, uh, and that's some magic, you know, and I don't know, I don't think work-life balance is just not a meaningful expression to me anymore. It's sort of like work-life integration um, and trying to find a way for that to work is really a journey. And the other thing is, I will say that I, that I also wish I'd learned earlier, which is I was striving to be someone that I thought other people thought I should be versus what I really wanted. And it took me a long time to know, I mean, really, I'm talking like 40s to know what I really wanted, you know, uh, personally and professionally. And we have this archetype in our head that's fed by parents and schools and society and all kinds of stuff around what we should be. And trying to strip away what you really, really want is really hard uh, because that those layers are thick and they're entrenched. My kids, uh, my oldest just started his freshman year in college. And one of the hardest parts for me was going to every school and having the tour guide ask the same question, what do you want to study when you come here? And just going, that's the wrong question. You should be asking, what are you curious about exploring when you come here? Don't make them feel they have to know before they even go into college what they should be studying. That's just so unfair, you know? And so, I, I, you know, that's sort of how I you know, keep, keep it open uh, if you can and try to you know, recognize that you're, you're driving your own bus. And uh, yeah, I guess that's what I'd say. Yeah. Thank you, Steve, so much for coming, bringing all of you, bringing not just your expertise as a profession, but bringing your expertise as a human. Dude, really appreciate you. Yeah, you bet. As we wrap up another episode of Evolve Leadership, thank you so much for taking time to invest in you. If there's to be any sustainable growth in your company or even in your relationships, you must grow first. And it's what I love to do for leaders, to help them grow, to challenge their thinking, sharpen self-awareness, to instill an unshakable confidence, and ultimately upgrade their sense of self. And we do this through our proprietary method called Agile EQ+ where we're leveraging agile leadership and emotional intelligence. We provide our signature training for individuals and for businesses, we've designed a unique curriculum for company-wide learning and development. If you'd like to learn more about our training or to schedule a call, you can simply go to evolveleadership.org. And until next time, stay driven, keep climbing, and never stop evolving.